0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jennifer Petter. She is the founder and chief scientific officer of Waltham, Massachusetts-based Arrakis Therapeutics. Jennifer is a medicinal chemist by training who has spent her career thinking about how to make small molecules with all the classic Lipinski rule of five characteristics against protein targets. Five years ago, when she was looking for a new entrepreneurial challenge, she attended a Gordon conference. She saw a couple of scientific presentations from Matt Disney at the Scripps Research Institute and Kevin Weeks from UNC Chapel Hill that gave her an idea. Might it now be possible to make small molecules against RNA targets? Quickly, she was inspired to get going on building a new drug discovery platform at what is now called Arrakis Therapeutics. Arrakis took this work up several notches this spring through a new partnership with Roche. The big drug maker, seeing the possibility for creating multiple small molecules against RNA targets, agreed to pay $190 million up front to Arrakis to work together on making it happen. Karak has also recently described its work in detail in its first peer-reviewed publication in ACS Chemical Biology. You can read about that in the show notes posted on TimmermanReport.com. Jennifer also used to identify as a man and was known as Russ Petter. She came out publicly as transgendered in June 2018, changed her name to Jennifer at that time. CEO Mike Gilman wrote about it on the company blog. In this conversation, we spent the first part talking about Jennifer's early life and key steps in her career leading up to the current work at Arrakis. In the last 10 to 15 minutes, we talked about her gender transition and how she handled that in the workplace. I think my questions are a little awkward, frankly, but it's okay because I think the situation was awkward for a lot of people involved at the time. It's old news at this point, but I think Jennifer has some timeless thoughts on handling this situation with grace. Now, before we get started, do you enjoy the Long Run Podcast? Maybe you'd like to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and venture investors who listen to this show. My business representative, Stephanie Barnes, can tell you about sponsorship opportunities. Tell me about your company and why it's a good fit as an advertiser on this show in a brief email luke at timmermanreport.com Now, please join me and Jennifer Petter on The Long Run. Jennifer Petter, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you. So, uh, I have to say, when we get started here, Jen, before we dive into your whole story, have you seen the uh, the Dune movie trailer? And especially the part where they say, like, Arrakis is a death trap? <laughs>
1: yes i i um so the company's really not a debtor
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good to clarify that up front
1: <laughs> but we we do appreciate that let's put it this way: there are certain challenges in the science that the company has to grapple with, and um let's just say there are certain challenges that the characters in the book and the movie have to grapple with um with at least in the first novel you know reasonably satisfying outcomes.
0: Well, um, the movie looks pretty exciting. Uh, I don't know when it's supposed to come out, but you guys will probably have like a special screening with popcorn and everything, right?
1: Well, we would like to. We don't know how practical that will be with a social distancing situation, Um, but I think it's supposed to come out at the end of this year, this calendar year. Um, And it's two movies, actually. I think that he wisely decided just to divide it up into two movies.
0: All right. Well, we can come back to that at the end. Um, but, you know, th- I'm really pleased to have you on the show here, Jen, and uh, to tell your story and your journey in, uh, in biotech and what you're doing there with small molecules for, um, against RNA targets. Um, so, so where does this actually start for you? Your, um, where did you grow up, born and
1: raised? was born in Chicago. Uh, my father was a minister. So I was born while he was in Divinity School at the University of Chicago. And, um, you know, we moved around quite a bit. So we went to, he was a chaplain's, we were in San Diego. Then he took a church in New Jersey, where I spent five years, and then a church outside of Rochester, New York, for six years. And then he left the ministry, went into social services, and we moved to Newton, uh, Massachusetts, where I graduated from high school.
0: Do you have any siblings? Three younger brothers, and so and your
1: mom. What did she do? Um, She was very involved in the National Organization for Women um, uh, when I was growing up, and then after we moved to Massachusetts, she moved into the workforce uh, again, doing social services. Also, Um, she helped build up an organization called Wider Opportunities for Women, Um, and so um, yeah, so there was it was a very interesting. Um, it's, let's put it this way. There was nothing about our parents that said scientists.
0: Right. But it sounds, I mean, this is a mission driven kind of household. It sounds like, uh, what, what kind of values did they try to impart on you and your brothers?
1: Yeah. So my father, although a minister, he was not the dirty dancing kind of minister, as I'd like to say, he was a smoking, drinking, cussing and marching <sighs> against the war minister. Um, so, um, you know, it was very much about you know doing the right thing by by people. Um, when Mart, it was one of the more interesting experiences as a kid. Speaking of imparting values, was that uh, after Martin Luther King was shot, there was of course the uh, funeral. My father kept us home from school. Said, "Sit down, watch this. It will matter." Um, it was like, wow. Okay.
0: Really? Uh, You know, and this and where were you living at this time?
1: At that time, we were in Fairport, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester, New York.
0: So, I mean, you're a a white family um, at suburban Rochester. I mean, a lot of white people there. I I, I don't think this was was this a a normal thing like (laughs) for people to stay.
1: Yes. (laughs) For that town, maybe not.
0: Yeah. Wow. That and so, how old were you when? That happened?
1: So he was shot in 68, as I recall, and I was born in 56. So I hadn't yet turned 12. I think I was 11 at the time.
0: Okay, well, still quite an impressionable time um, for for a kid. So when did the light bulbs turn on for you about science? How how did this uh, become interesting to you?
1: It's you know it's an interesting question. I, I, I'm not sure I entirely know the ideology etiolo- of my science interest. Um, you know, my when we were in San Diego, my my parents took us to go see Mount Palomar, which had this gigantic uh, visual telescope, um, optical telescope, and uh, let's just say its enormity had a big impression on me. And so, um, and I started reading a lot of science fiction. So I was a voracious consumer of science fiction as a kid, and still to some extent. Um and uh so I think that sort of kept it alive and um you know really began to see some of the reality as I began to take science courses that were a little more in depth later in high school and college.
0: So it started out just general curiosity and access to the library and oh yeah things in the community. Um Okay well, how did it turn toward chemistry because that's like you you got on that train early it looks like and you' and, and really you know got on in a, in a very serious way throughout your whole academic training
1: so you know I actually when I went to college I was very much not into chemistry as a direction I was thinking of in fact you know doing biology or anthropology more. To try to steer things away from chemistry. But I finally decided to, you know, suck it up and 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 uh eat my Wheaties uh and and take my chemistry. Um and something unexpected happened when I got into organic chemistry. Um the the professor there was just fantastic. But I also discovered that um, you know, chemistry isn't quite as empirical as biology is, but it isn't quite as Uh, equation-oriented as physics, and it's a very graphical, visual sort of um, field, at least organic chemistry is. And so I was very, very drawn to that graphic, visual way of of thinking about science.
0: Huh, and you discovered that as an undergrad? This was Dartmouth? Yes. Okay, now did that, had you realized that from any other classes? Like, I don't know, visual arts maybe, or?
1: Um, You know, I've, I've always been, motivated by the visual and the aesthetic and the, and the mechanical. Um, So it wasn't surprising to me, but, um, but, you know, how should I, organic chemistry is a field where you can practically do a pretty good job. Just, you know, reading the pictures. Uh, (laughs) It's, it's a little like reading music uh, in that it's a different language and it's a, it's just graphically, the format is a very different language but you begin to understand it and it begins, you, you begin to see the beauty of it. Um, and, you know, other courses approached this, but none of them really quite clicked for me.
0: You said you, you, said you had to suck it up and eat your Wheaties. It may it sound like this didn't just all come naturally. And no. you, 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 you had to work on it.
1: Well, uh, what I had to do was accept the idea that I was going to do chemistry as a prerequisite for what I imagined to be a career in biology but I got snagged by the chemistry um, en route to biology. Okay,
0: okay. So you, you found out that this was actually something that you um, you wanted to follow through and get the major? Uh,
1: yeah, and you know, another way to think about this is that organic chemistry is that as a, in high school and as a freshman, they don't really teach you organic chemistry. You don't get immersed in that visual aspect of the science. It really isn't until you get immersed in organic chemistry that you begin to get exposed to that and how to affect your thinking. So I think that the, the very arithmetic nature of much of freshman chemistry, um, it's, it's just something I found a little off-putting.
0: Okay, okay. So um, what was your next move then? You go through uh, to decide to get your PhD in organic chemistry at, at Duke. How did, that, how did you end up going there?
1: So um <laughs> wondering how much of this I should tell you. <laughs> so, so first of all, um what I really loved about um research is that research was a way to it it really cuts you loose from the the strictures of coursework. You know, I had a love-hate relationship with coursework. I could if inspired, I could do very well. If not inspired, I could do very poorly. Uh, and the outcome of that was that, although I did well on tests, uh, like, you know, standardized tests, um, you know, my my grades at Dartmouth were nothing to get excited about. So I applied to a bunch of graduate schools um, and a number of the more high-end ones that I thought would be fun, I didn't get into. And I got into Duke and Brown and decided on Duke um, for geography. And plus, some of the professors looked very interesting to me. Um, So, you know, I think the usual process that people go through.
0: Geography, what, being warmer weather in the South?
1: I had just gotten married in the summer of um, 78, and so Brown seemed a little too close to Boston.
0: Okay. Okay. So, um somewhere different so you go there and uh and and it's you're sticking with organic chemistry and what are you thinking that you might do with that or or was it just a matter of like nose to the grindstone graduate school like figure out how to get a couple papers and uh you know get through it
1: well sort of a theme of my life is i tend to throw myself into things and i'm very you know caught up in the problem and what i like about it and i don't tend to generate real grand plans for my life. I can think about one full step beyond. Um, And so as I got, you know, deeply into the science, I really loved the science and my interest was in, um, you know, becoming an academic. Um, And um, so insofar as a plan began to emerge, it would be to go to a postdoctoral fellowship that would make that possible. You know, that was my level of, of real planning and then get there and do a good job and then uh, get into, um, you know, a kind of become an assistant professor at the kind of program where you could do some serious research.
0: Sure. OK, so that's the classic academic route. Um, and and uh, lots of graduate students think along those lines. And then you decide to. Um, OK, so you get the Ph.D., you move on, you go to Columbia, uh, Ron Breslau. Now, what was uh, what uh, what drew you there?
1: Well, a couple of things. One is that his particular research, which was sort of bioorganic and biomimetic chemistry, was just was fascinating to me. And I'd read a lot of his papers. Another is that I knew New York very well um, and uh, was very interested in being there. Um, and another was that, you know, Ron had um, had a long track record of finding uh, academic positions, you know, at good institutions uh, for his postdocs. And so those things came together to make that an attractive option for me.
0: Was there something applied about the work or you're still thinking in, in pure academic terms?
1: Yeah, I absolutely. There was no point at that stage when I seriously entertained an industrial option. Um, a lot of students were torn, you know, between one for the other. And I was... Um, completely committed to an academic direction.
0: Okay, so what changed for you? Because it, it did around this time, right?
1: Well, I went to the University of Pittsburgh on a tenure-track job there. And, you know, the tenure-track is, is up or out, and I didn't get promoted, which I will tell you at the time was um, somewhere between very unpleasant and tragic. Um, and I uh, recovered from that and moved on to industry. After how long of a period were you there at Pitt? Seven years. Oh, wow. Okay. So you find out about uh, the the tenure decision early in your sixth year, and then they give you quite a bit of time to kind of, (laughs) if you get promoted, great. Or if not, get time to recover and then actually go find a job.
0: Oh, okay. So it sounds like that was a hard hard time. Uh, Any thoughts on what happened or why that didn't happen for you?
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I actually got quite a bit funding, so that was a good thing. Um, and, um, uh, so I had a group of that, that hit like 11, 12 people at one point. Um, and you know, some interesting work. Um, but I would say that perhaps at that point I hadn't appreciated the concept of the deliverable, uh, and, um, or, or uh, the minimum publishable unit. Um, And, you know, I conducted my research really in many ways as my uh, mentors had conducted their research in which they would, you know, give each idea a sufficient time, very longitudinal time until it it reached fruition and then published an important publication. Um, As an assistant professor, I think you need to kind of, you know, push these things out pretty fast. And so, you know, so I have some thoughts about things I could have done better, Uh, but, um, but I would—I don't have a lot of regrets. It was a fantastic time. My life it was enormously uh, hard work and stressful, and yet I learned an enormous amount of chemistry there and about people and about myself.
0: Okay, okay. So maybe not as many publications or the kind of publications that they wanted.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. So you got a little time here, as you say, to recover <laughs> and think about what what else you might do what, what was your thought process at that time
1: well usually if you don't uh, if you don't get promoted at a place like pitt you um, you sort of have to go down a notch if you're going to find another uh, faculty position um, and so the opportunities that I looked at uh, of that nature uh, weren't appealing uh, to me and so um, whereas if you can find a place in industry, you know, the, you have an enormous resources available. Um, and, um, and you've really kind of changed the terms of your work. Um, and so ultimately I decided to, to give that a shot.
0: And how did you go about doing that?
1: Y- you know, this is a period where, where jobs did, were not, did not abound. Um, you know, this was around 1989, 1990, uh, even in, um, you know, venture investing in startups was fairly modest at that point. Uh, so you had to go out there and sort of beat the pavement and apply to places that had advertised openings and, and uh, look like the best candidate to them. Uh-huh. And where did you end up? Uh, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, which, uh, which uh, turned, of course, into Novartis. Uh-huh. To be specific, uh, in the East Hanover Research Facility that Sandoz had at that time.
0: Hanover, New, New Jersey?
1: Yes, East Hanover, New Jersey.
0: Okay, so you're you're in Big Pharma land uh, now. Like, what um,
1: what were you doing? What was your group working on? So I uh, was a scientist, a Sci2, As I started in uh, in the cardiovascular disease uh, group, uh, I started off working on uh, squalene synthase inhibitors. So, and I got back in the lab. You know, you turn on the stereo and start running reactions and. I had a grand old time.
0: Rolling up the sleeves.
1: <laughs> yeah. Plus, I think they were testing me. There's a concern that that if, you, if you're if uh, you an academic at a significant institution, that you're going to be a prima donna and have a bit of a chip on your shoulder. Apparently not. But, but the ego was able to handle it. <laughs> like I said, I actually had a lot of fun, you know, yeah. um, new kinds of problems. And, you know, what I learned very quickly is that as an academic, you have to define, you have to bring an intellectual agenda to the party and you need to persuade the world that the questions you want to ask are interesting, that the, uh, that you're the right person to answer those questions and that the answers are intriguing. In contrast, in industry, it's a high level of consensus about what the important problems are. Um, and so you, you get to work on those and, you know, if you can show up at work every day and whack up some enthusiasm for solving other people's problems, you can have a blast in industry. And that, that worked for me. I mean, you were okay with taking direction,
0: um, being a team player, basically. Yeah, I,
1: you know, okay with someone telling me, look, we're going after squalene synthase. Now, within that, we're going to try this and this, but if you've got some ideas, let's, let's do those too. Um, but, you know, exactly, sign up for the, for the mission that uh, has been defined by the company and and, and get going. Okay, so how long were you we there at Sandoz? Total of five years um, before I, uh, just, just as the, the merger came along, I decided both because of the company going through the, the merger with SEBA uh, and also because, um, you know, personal things in my life have begun to change, decided to go to Boston and work at Biogen.
0: Okay, so this is going into the biotech world. Uh, what was it about Biogen that that drew you there?
1: So aside from the location, which is where all my family was located, um, I kind of like the idea of a biotech company, kind of a small to mid-sized biotech company that was entertaining small molecules as a therapeutic modality. Um, and... So there was a sense that it was a little bit of a smaller pond, um, and some pretty exciting science.
0: And you could s- stay in your lane, for lack of a better term, with small molecule medicinal chemistry, which you had been working on there was at Sandoz.
1: Yeah, although I should point out that that I would often get drawn into some um, other um, projects. That one of my projects at Sandoz was a. A polymer-supported uh, drug uh, that went into the clinic, and then uh, while I was at um, uh, at Biogen, I got pulled into uh, ADCs. Okay, and um, started doing total protein chemical synthesis and things like that. So, but but yes, you're right. For the most part, it was all about making small molecule um, um, therapeutics.
0: Okay, but but with some exposure to different modalities, um, which, you know, it's interesting.
1: <laughs> yes, if you're at Biogen, you know, you're not learning anything about biologics, like you're not
0: <laughs> paying attention. Right. That the, the place is called Biogen. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay,
1: and, and what years were you there? So I showed up at Biogen in um, 1996 and, um, and left in September of 2005. Okay,
0: so this would have been a, a period of growth on when Avonex had come along, and you know it was becoming a you know an integrated company with sales and everything. Absolutely. Uh, um, and and uh, what was it? What was that experience like for you? To, I mean, this is an important chapter in your career.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, it's worth noting that at this point, I didn't have a breadth of experience to appreciate how special that stage was for the company. Um, but but you're right that um, Avonex had launched in the U.S., I think in May of 2000, of, excuse me, of 1996. And I started in August of 96. So there was a, you know, the fu- we own the future kind of a feeling at the company. Um, and modest growth, I'd say, in the 90s and then more aggressive growth in research in the early 2000s. Um, So, um, plus, you know, Biogen really sort of fancied itself a biology company. And so your job as the the chemist was to interact with the biologists and find ways to solve their problems. That is to say, to find agents that would interdict the targets that they were interested in, uh, you know, and see if you could find a drug. You also
0: met a lot of people (laughs) in these years who ended up uh, you ended up working with, uh, closely at other, other stops who, who would have been, uh, well,
1: I mean, Mike Gilman would have been one, right? So, um, I met Mike Gilman, um, in, well, I guess maybe you showed up like in 1999 or so. Um, but then research was reorganized and Mike was head of discovery research and the person who had hired me, Steve Adams left to go to Neogenesis. Um, and uh, Mike was sort of looking around and says, basically, you you look pretty sharp. Why don't you come run this stuff? And so that's how I ended up being head of of MedCam and then later Small Molecule Drug Discovery. Um, got to know Dan Kerwer, who was uh, the head of research operations for uh, Mike for a while. Um, and then, you know, so Alphonse Galdez, who's still at uh, Biogen. He was um, later on, he was my boss for a while. So... Um, you know, a lot of fun people there.
0: If you like listening to the Long Run Podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and from an outstanding cast of contributing writers, such as Otello Stampaccia, Ruth Etzioni, Alex Harding, Annie Iserson, and David Shaywitz a bargain at $169 a year for an individual to subscribe. Discounts are available for large companies and universities with multiple readers. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe and show your support for quality journalism today. And Are you a fan of the Long Run Podcast? Maybe trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with the high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and venture investors who listen to the Long Run? I don't accept public relations pitches for guests on this show, but my business representative, Stephanie Barnes, can tell you about advertising opportunities. First, tell me about your company and why it's a relevant advertiser for this show in a brief email. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Were there any of the projects that you worked on that uh, you know really made it all the way? I mean, when I think of Biogen Small Molecule, I mean there's there's Tecfidera, but I think that came from outside.
1: Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so Tecfidera was being licensed in um, a few months before that layoff in 2005, where I exited. Um, I, and I will confess, I found it kind of amusing that, you know, when Biogen finally goes for a small molecule, they go for a really, really small molecule. Um, so, yeah, so the the, the programs that, uh, let's say, absorbed most of my time were, first of all, the VLA-4 program, um, where, you know, ultimately no one's gotten a small molecule VLA-4 antagonist uh, out there. Um, but it was, you know, integrins were all the rage at the time. And I'd actually worked on vla 4 at Sandoz prior to showing up at uh, Biogen. So um, we had some very potent molecules, a couple of which went to the clinic, uh, but nothing ultimately uh, to the pharmacy. Uh, I also worked on what was called the Adentry Program or BG9928, Um, and one was an agent that we had licensed in from CV Therapeutics. Another was an agent that was a sort of a, a second gen molecule. And both of those uh, went to the clinic. And so I helped with the process development for the CVT-124, otherwise known as BG9719. And then I helped basically discover BG9928. And both of those went into phase two trials. Uh, but again, uh, neither of them ultimately went uh, into the pharmacy.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a common, common refrain. Yeah, and-
1: no, I, I've had my, my compounds of, of mine that have entered clinical trials is now in this small double digits, but unfortunately nothing's quite gotten past registration.
0: Well, we we're, there's still time and we have hope here at arrakis, but let's uh, let's keep moving here. Now you, you so you exit Biogen with a layoff 2005. Um, you, you, but by this point you know, we just mentioned you, you know a lot of people, you're in the Kendall Square um, environment. Uh, go to Mersana for a little while. now that's that was antibody drug conjugates, right?
1: Well, I was there before ADCs came along, so I, you know, hats off to Tim Lowinger and, and his team for, for really sort of appreciating that ADCs that the that the fleximer um, a technology that Merzana had uh, solved an important problem, which is how to get your um, how to get your, your your warhead load up without. Um, you know, ruining the, the physical properties of the ADC. Um, so when I showed up in February of 2006, um, we were looking at, um, molecules that were bound to the polymer and then the polymer, um, uh, tended to, uh, localize into tumors and then, um, decompose, uh, liberating the drug locally. Um, and so there were, a this is similar in that one compound was already moving along, and so I had to help it through the, the, the development process uh, to get into the clinic. And then another one was a drug that I invented there and that um, ultimately went into the clinic after I had left. Um, but it was a very different kind of modality than I had worked with before. How would you end up going to Avila? Well, I knew the players there, so I knew Juswinder Singh from Biogen. Uh, and He was the founder over there, at, and way well, he was co-founder. Roy Lobb was another founder. He'd been head of biology over at uh, Biogen, um, and um, so you know they got this thing started. It seemed it was a, it was attractive to me because, in some ways, like Marsana as well, you had this opportunity to drive the science with the molecules. That is to say, you're you're coming up with a new uh, kind of a, a of a molecular type um, or i wouldn 't quite go with necessarily with modality, but um, you 're coming up with a new new chemotype, and that that drives the opportunities for uh, biology and pharmacology so i I like that sort of directionality of of, of the flow of concepts and so I, um, I I sort of signed up with them and the idea
0: from the start was about. Covalent binders, right
1: yeah, that was the concept that juss and, and Roy um settled upon, and um you know the idea to to find molecules that were um selective but um irreversible inhibitors of their targets
0: and why was that uh considered wild or controversial at the time <laughs>
1: so- So I often compare Avila and Arrakis in this respect. Um, With uh, Avila, everyone was pretty sure you could do it. They just didn't think you should do it. Um, With Arrakis, people weren't sure if you could do it. But if you could, they knew you should do it. Um, So... um, you know, I think the concern was that you would get adventitious modification of targets, and that this would lead to uh, downstream toxicity, and that this wasn't, in, in some ways, inevitable. That is to say, you're introducing this electrophile, which will lead to broad um, and sort of potentially indiscriminate modification. And it's not, it's not irrational in the sense that a you could get, you know, some modification of targets you didn't really want to modify. Um, and also, if you get metabolic events could e- further activate your electrophile. So um, you know the concerns were, were reasonable, but much of what our research was directed at was um, trying to calm those concerns and show that the compounds were extremely selective. Um, a lot of the, the, the drug design work is to find this balance between the binding of the, the, the binding of the molecule to the target. Um, and then having local activation of that electrophile um, so that you could, you could tone down its raw electrophilicity and lead to an extremely um, selective agent.
0: And like so many things in drug discovery, it comes back to the biology and how much we know about that uh, and finding the right target. And the one that I recall uh, coming, covering Avila at the time was BTK. Yes, was that the one that kind of you know was the the key kind of test case that actually you can make a covalent binder specifically against this target and and get you know the 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 th- desired therapeutic effect
1: um I mean it wasn't the first target internally that we had um successfully gotten data for uh, we had a, there was a, a C kit um Uh, result that we got um, and so but it was the target where it was clear that we were solving a problem for reasons that i think remain obscure uh, we were aware of a number of high throughput screens against btk that had come up with nothing um not really sure why because you know egfr uh, egfr kinase screens were reasonably fruitful um, but by introdu- by taking the uh, EGFR like ligands and weaponizing them with our um, our warheads, we were able to produce irreversible modification of the of the BTK. And then the problem was to um, the the challenge of SAR was was to was to kind of design away the crossover to EGFR kinase.
0: Okay, so you had a couple different targets where. Um, you're, you're proving this out that um, you can get the selective uh, the selectivity that you want um, against a target of interest. BTK, uh, there were others too working on it, Pharmacyclics being one. Um, you end up th- th- this thing getting acquired by um, Celgene. Uh, this would have been something like 2012, is that right?
1: yeah so uh b t k clearly was one of the drivers as i understand it. Celgene had been interested in the ibrutinib negotiations and and didn't end up with that asset even though it fit very much inside of their um their realm of interest uh and so what the asset that we offered looked became particularly attractive to them uh we um yeah, so the the acquisition I think was actually was announced at the end of January of two thousand twelve, and then culminated on March eighth of two thousand twelve, if I recall correctly.
0: Okay, okay. So this is uh, you know, a successful startup, and you would have been you would have been an early, uh, reasonably early employee. Um, so this is, yeah. So um, I mean do you, I mean, how, how did that change your life? I mean, it wasn't like I mean, it doesn't make you like. Bill Gates rich or anything, but you know, I mean, you're, you're, um, you know, you did okay, right?
1: Yeah, I was treated, I was treated very well. You know, first of all, um, there's that lovely liquidity event. Secondly, I should say that, that the board, they were a real stand-up crew and they uh, took care of all of the employees and shareholders. And so we did really quite well. And, um, you know, to, to get at the question you're, you're asking, I mean, it, it didn't, I hadn't hit my number, you know. I still had a mortgage and kids to put through college, um, but it did it did make certain parts of life simpler and more straightforward. And then, of course, at the end of the acquisition, it turns out we still had jobs, which was great. Yeah,
0: they Celgene the wanted you to
1: stick around, and and you did for a while. Yeah. So shortly after the acquisition, I um, was asked to be VP of Chemistry, which meant that. I had all of the science, uh, including biology and pharmacology uh, in, in, at the time it was Bedford, Massachusetts, and then all of the chemistry in San Diego. Um, and so it, there was a period where my, my <laughs> th- so that all, went, I went from having a 15-person group in chemistry and, and, and computation to all, to about 100 people on two coasts, uh, which was a big transformation for me. But yeah, it was uh, it was a great job.
0: Flying back and forth was was that not your thing?
1: Uh, you know you you do what you have to. But I will say that after a few years, you know, at seventy percent travel, um, I said it's a great job. But you know, I live in Hollywood. There's probably a great job like right here, um, and so I I. I told my friends at Celgene I think I need to go that was in 2015 I, and I, that, that I would look around
0: you say I live in Hollywood for biotech
1: yeah like every six <laughs> weeks there's a fantastic new company being formed so there's got to be something fun to do here
0: so you just decided to throw caution to the wind and you know um, just quit and then look around
1: well that was the plan yes uh, <laughs> I was prepared to spend six to 12 months. Kind of working the networks here in, in Cambridge and Boston and see what was going on, see if there was something I could do to help out with some company.
0: That sounds like a pretty good uh, gig if you can you can do it. Um, so you
1: did this. Well it, uh, it didn't actually work out that way but but yes, that was okay. the plan. Well so how, how did it how did it go? Well so in May of 2015, I told um, uh, Greg Reyes, who was the head of discovery for Celgene, Thanks, this has been awesome, but I'm going to go. Um, in June of 2015, so I haven't left yet, I went to a conference on uh, chemical biology, a Gordon conference on chemical biology, and saw a whole session on, on RNA and small molecules. And it was a revelation to me. It was like, I did not get the email. This is a thing, we're doing this. I want to do that. Um, and it was, not because I, it was not because I knew what the answer was, but because I was very uh, energized by the problem. So, um, in July, I sat down and talked to Raj Parekh from Advent Life Sciences, and he'd, he'd been on the Avala board. No, no, wait a, su- wait a second, Jen. Let's back up here. Uh, where, was, where was this Gordon Conference? It was the Gordon Conference on High-Throughput Chemistry and Chemical Biology in June of 2015, um, and it's at the uh, Colby-Sawyer site, which is in New London, New Hampshire. Okay. And is this where you saw
0: um, Matt Disney from Scripps? And um, uh, there's another guy from UNC. I'm forgetting his name. Kevin, Kevin Weeks. Yeah. Um, and what what were they presenting and what was it that captivated you?
1: Matt was presenting some of his earlier work on, on you know, these um, component molecules that would bind to RNA and produce changes in um in the function and expression levels of, of various targets, targeting microRNA and things like that. Um, and then um, Kevin was talking about doing uh, shape analysis and the fact that you could do shape analysis in cells and that fact you could introduce, um, you know, fragments, essentially small molecule fragments and um, produce alterations in that. So, um, you know, these were the two principal talks that, that um, kind of got me going. And but
0: were they kind of putting the pieces together, like actually you could make small molecules or was this something where, where you being a, a chemist are thinking, well, actually, the, maybe, maybe this is where I fit in?
1: <laughs> well, you, you're exactly right that, um, you know, both of them were of an academic bent. I think that Disney has, is a, an, actual, an absolute trailblazer. His molecules didn't look especially drug-like to me, and so that looked like there was some, you know, improvement that might be possible there. And um, Kevin had the, these fantastic methods, uh, but hadn't sort of put it together, I think, with, with a therapeutic uh, bent. Um, and so, f- again, for me, the discontinuity, if you will, is approaching this from a drug discovery perspective rather than from a purely intellectual academic perspective.
0: Right, right, right. Like you know, you're someone that knows the the Lipinski rule of five by heart, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe they need to look it up. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> they had, yeah, yeah. They're, they're sharp guys, but I think they didn't know how to spell Lipinski. So, um, so um, uh, that was my. Nor should they have, you know, uh, because right. they didn't need to. Um, but so that was oh. the direction I wanted to head in. So, did you talk to them about? this
0: or like go up and ask questions afterwards or did you just think you know what maybe there's like a a clean sheet of paper kind of opportunity for me to actually start something
1: i did uh go up afterwards and talk to matt desney and i he was already kind of chatting with uh with folks um about potentially getting something started um and then later on i called uh kevin weeks um and he had not he had a little company called Ribometrics, but it was really devoted towards uh, shape analysis and even providing kits to do shape analysis, not towards therapeutics at the time. Um, so Kevin actually ended up being on our SAB for about a year and a half. Uh,
0: Okay, okay. Let's come back to what you said earlier. You made this remark about, you know, with the idea of small molecules against RNA targets uh, and how people within the industry, like you just would have said that as a concept and people would have dismissed because they'd have thought, you know, you probably can't do it. But gosh, if you could, that would be amazing because like this, all the benefits of small molecules, orally available, easy to manufacture at dirt cheap scale and all that, right?
1: Yeah, that was that was a very important element of our pitch. That's correct. Um, and you you encountered various levels of incredulity, um, uh, you know, from all kinds of parties. But
0: why why did people? Why was the dogma just so against this? Like that just sounds impossible.
1: Um, you know, some of it for perfectly good reasons, and some of it for reasons that just reflect not having really thought things through. Um, So one is that people needed to appreciate that RNA had structure. Um, People in the RNA field knew this, but, um, you know, most people in the drug industry hadn't really thought about it. But, you know, the textbooks show mRNA being linear because that's how it's translated. But in fact, you know, 85% of of RNA structure is folded in some way or another. Uh, Another is uh, the notion that somehow because there's only four nucleotides – that the degree of of, um, macromolecular diversity is just not there and I I think that actually there are ways to sort of unpack that argument and show that it's not quite uh, right. Um, You have plenty of diversity, uh, structural diversity in RNAs. Another is the concern about the dynamics of the targets and some RNAs are sufficiently dynamic that they are refractory to efforts whereas some are actually fairly coherent in their dynamics. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it is just going through, you know, one discussion after another and trying to 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 allay people's uh, concerns. Now, when you
0: say dynamics, I'm a layperson here. Are you, does that mean unstable, like unstable or like floppy kind of?
1: That it's hard to bind with them? More floppy than unstable. I mean, I mean, it's true that at a higher or lower pH, you can get uh, strand cleavage uh, of RNA um, and that you need to you know, exercise some caution. There are certain cleanliness methods just to do the experiments in RNA. But once you learn what those methods are, it becomes sort of second nature. So you know, RNA is not inherently fragile. Um, but the, the, the dynamics issue really has to do with the fact that that some RNAs exist in, in, a, in a highly complex manifold of different, um, of different tertiary structures, which are interconvert convert fairly rapidly, whereas others, um, it's a mu- they're much more well-ordered. And, and so the interconvergence are not quite um, as numerous.
0: Okay. So uh, now at this time, of course, people had been drugging rna targets through siRNA, antisense uh, other things um so there was some there were some targets out there but they didn't really stri- rise to the list of of ones that you would pursue with a small molecule at, but at the time did you um was it widely known that um some of these antibiotics that have been around forever were actually binding against you know rna targets
1: well, certainly by the time we were going out and talking to people, I think most people had internalized um, what everyone learned from Tom Stites, which is that not only does our ribosome that they have structure, but in fact, it's the RNA, which is the central element of that, and that many of the antibiotics bind directly to the RNA portions of uh, ribosomes. So, so I don't think that that was really news to most of the people that we've talked to. Um, what was news was that was that you might be able to address messenger RNA in a similar fashion.
0: Okay. Okay. So now you can come back to this question of how you got this thing started. So, I mean, this is just like you as a lone founder going to talk to, was it Raj Parekh at Advent, you said?
1: Yeah, so in in July of 2015, I actually started off talking to Roy Lobb, uh, member of the co-founder of of, uh, of Avila. He said, "This is a great idea, but I we're interested in this because he was all, a venture partner for Advent at the time." And he said, "Raj is going to be in town uh, in another week or two, and so why don't you talk to him?" Um, and Raj, it, I'm not sure exactly his title, managing director, I think for or managing partner for. Um, uh, for Advent life sciences, and as I said, we knew him from avila so um you know we did breakfast basically, and I explained what he what we were interested in doing and they had been looking at this for about a year um and uh with some academics, but you know <laughs> you know startup companies like a ham and eggs breakfast you know the the chicken participates, but the pig is committed um, <laughs> so so the academics in this regard would be the chickens, and I self-identify as a pig. Um, I said, I wanted to be also at breakfast with Raj. I said, you know, I'm ready. Let's do this. And Raj, um, let's just say the feeling was mutual. Before breakfast was over, we kind of had a company. And so you're going to – so it's you and Roy are co-founders, but – Roy was a co-founder of Avila with, with Juss. In this oh, okay. respect, Roy Just sent me to breakfast with Raj.
0: Okay. Okay. So this really is like you know you and you're going to be the CEO, um, and like really like uh, this is like all in entrepreneurship, uh, and and not even like taking a license or something that somebody's already you know got twenty percent done. Um, this this is like a
1: whiteboard. If there had been academic uh, assets that we thought would have accelerated our our work we would have gone after it. There's the, let me just, it was not an issue of pride. It was just, we didn't see any assets there that we thought got the job done for us and therefore uh, went forward with with just trust us. And I should say that my job initially was founder and CSO. And then for a while I was the CEO for about eight months or so.
0: Okay. Is that something that you wanted to
1: do or not really? It was nice. Um, but you know, I knew when we got real money that the investor would want a real CEO, and so we ended up with Mike Gilman, which is awesome.
0: Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But like to get this get this thing going, you've uh, okay to, to actually execute on this. You have got a lot of work to do, right? You got to put together the platform. So what what are some of the? And, and I know you just came out with a paper and I, uh, that I was able to look at. Uh, it's your first peer reviewed paper, I think, uh, after five years, where you talk about the. Um, you needed methods to demonstrate that you you could make small molecule ligands that actually do selectively bind to an RNA target. There actually there weren't good tools to even demonstrate that.
1: Yeah, so, um, so let me work my way up to that just a little bit. So, um, so first of all, um, Raj hooked me up with Alan Waltz, who was a venture partner for. Um, advent also at that time. And uh, he worked very closely with me uh, on sort of all aspects of getting this started. It was, he was enormously helpful. Um, and then a lot of it is sort of beginning to pull people in as, as quickly as possible. But it turns out that Jim Barsom, whom I, another Biogen connection, whom I, whom I knew from Biogen, um, yet yeah, he'd been head of gene therapy at Biogen. Then he was head of research at, um, um, at Cinta, and at the time, he was at Rana Therapeutics, which he was exiting. And so he was kind of available for consulting. And so in the fall of 2015, brought him in as a consultant, which was, turns out, decisive for us. Um, so it became clear to us that we were going to have to take, you know, the the entire drug discovery enterprise as applied to proteins and either adjust at best or reinvent at best worst, everything in order to make it work for RNA. Um, and so one of the elements of that is is that you know chemical biology is emerging as a central critical path player in drug discovery for proteins. I think for RNA it's even more important because, You need to be able to persuade people that you know what's going on. I mean, if I tell somebody I have a molecule that binds to a kinase and produces this biology, most people are going to give me the benefit of the doubt. And if I don't show them chemical biology proving engagement, they might say, well, we'll get to that later. With RNA, I don't think anyone's going to give us the benefit of the doubt. We need to be able to prove that when we put a molecule in there and it produces biology, that it does so by virtue of binding to the RNA that we said it did. So it was important to develop those methods. I should I should emphasize that photoaffinity labeling of RNA is we did not invent that. That had been done before. It was applying that to uh, a system and refining it so that it, it was capable of being addressed to you know larger transcriptomes, messenger RNA, things like that. Um, that was the element of innovation in that particular paper. I would say, however, that's only one. One plank in the platform. Well, and I
0: think that's an important point to make because, you know, it's never just like one enabling technology you know, in the modern drug discovery. It's about how you put all these pieces together, the tools that make up the platform, how they work together in concert. Right. So what are some of those tools? You mentioned photo affinity labeling uh, to what get you good um, visualizations of, of the binding
1: to To demonstrate that when you have a molecule that you know um which RNA it's binding to relative to other rnas in the transcriptome uh to understand the fact that it is engaging the target in in uh in the cell and then to uh actually begin to piece together what the binding site is uh, on that particular rna so there's a lot that the photo affinity results with sequencing um can tell you uh and so um, things which you just, with proteins, you can sometimes kind of piece together by other methods with RNA is so unprecedented that you have to you really have to do a lot of work to nail it down.
0: Okay, so what are a couple of other planks in the platform?
1: So one is target discovery and another is target um, validation. So uh, between um, the computational drug discovery group and the bioinformatics group, it's a big chore to go in there and look at, you know, if someone brings a gene and said, we would like to go after this gene. So that's fantastic. So we look at the entire transcript, both the pre-mRNA and then the mature mRNA, and, be, and ask the question, where are the folded structures in this in this entire uh, transcript? And um, do those folded structures overlap with regions where we expect there to be biologically important Functions. So, for example, um, in the regulation, the translation. A lot of times, this is found in the five prime UTR, the untranslated region. A splicing, of course, at the junctions between the introns and exons. And of course, then there's stability. Um, let's say structural determinants of de- structural determinants of the stability of the RNA are often found in the three prime UTR. So you can begin to sort of survey this overlap of of, of structural components in the RNA. And, um, and the functional uh, roles of those, um, of those RNAs. And that's where you begin to find your targets. And then they have to be structurally coherent enough that it brings us to the next plan. Because you have to be able to synthesize it and uh, QC it. And then you have to understand its structure. And most of these things are too large to do an NMR structure at any period of time. And so we use a variety of chemical probing techniques, most of which have been fairly well vetted in the literature. We, of course, have altered them and refined them, and uh, to, to understand, okay, it's, it's all fine and dandy that you think this is a structure, but when you make it, is that structure reality? So that's another part of the playing. And then screening. We just like screening methods that you would think would work just fine, do not. Um, and you know methods that are well vetted for proteins, whereas other methods have worked pretty well for us, so each element of that sort of discovery value chain has to be either tweaked or completely overhauled in order to to make progress
0: is there something fancy that needs to be done with the molecules themselves that the the, the the new chemical entities? I mean, because um, you're binding to allosteric sites, by and large. Um, you know, I mean, lots of people are playing around with different kinds of modalities. Or or is there nothing too exotic that you need to do here?
1: Well, what I can tell you is that in our approach, the molecules that we are identifying are, like, stunningly boring. <laughs> so- <laughs> That's how we well, let that's it. good. Like, it's like the most boring part of the entire enterprise is the structures of the small molecules. They're drug-like, they're um, lipinski compliant, you know. Um, we've, we've built an internal library of about 100,000 compounds, and we just made sure that the only compounds we're screening are the kinds of drugs that are, you know, motherhood and apple pie.
0: Well, that's good. You can don't don't have to take risk on every single aspect of the of the enterprise. We're
1: trying to minimize some risk. Some that's one area. That's another. I can explain, but but uh, but you know, you you're looking for molecules that are that are pretty straightforward. Um, you know, as we begin to do do SAR in these, we may begin to find that we need to venture a little bit outside of the rule of five. But uh, right now, the screening has yielded. Pretty normal-looking molecules, and you've screened uh, how many targets? Um, I've forgotten what the total. It's the dozens. Let's just call it dozens. And almost every one of them yields um, a good number of hits. We've had a couple that were refractory to screening.
0: Okay, okay, and these are novel targets, <laughs> or <laughs> are, are they? Are they ones we'd be familiar with? Yeah.
1: Well, when you say do you mean novel in the sense that they produce proteins that haven't been drugged, or novel? I mean, I mean, we don't do anything that isn't novel. Every one of these things that's screened is the, is an RNA.
0: Maybe I should back up here because we have seen a couple of uh, drugs that have come out. Just uh, well, one just recently, uh, uh, um, which I don't know if if people. Uh, Maybe we can re- can you tell me the story about that one cuz that one kind of goes back to 2015 as well around the founding of this company that was coming up at I guess PTC and then then Roche right. for spinal muscular atrophy. So in
1: 2015 the drug we knew about or the drug candidate we knew about was Branaplam out of uh, Novartis. Um, and Risdiplam was a rumor at that point um, but later on in 2017 18 the information became began to get published about Ristoplam. Um And plus, there was a nice paper out of Merck where they did a, a, a phenotypic screen and they found molecules that bound to a riboswitch in uh, the FMN riboswitch in uh, bacteria. Um, so these were kind of reason to believe molecules as we began to explain our, our plans to investors. So the story with with um, Braniplam, let's start with that. As As I understand it, of course, you... You get a better story from uh, colleagues at Novartis, but um, basically we have a disease which is a spinal muscular atrophy, which is the, it's just a human genetic disease. I think it's the most common monogenic human genetic disease. Uh, and in this disease, your SMN1 gene is knocked down. SMN1 is the primary gene for producing um, uh, SMN protein, um, survival motor neuron. Uh, this is a protein that you need for uh, good motor function. Uh, motor neuron function, and and uh, and frankly, normal um, neuronal development. Um, and so, if you have, uh, if, if your SMN1 gene is knocked out, you're in a very bad way. Now, it turns out that you have another gene, SMN2, which can also produce functional SMN, but in order to do so, it has to be efficiently spliced um, at exon 7. That is to say, exon 7 needs to be included. And it turns out that the um The clinical severity of your spinal muscular atrophy disease correlates to the efficiency with which you splice s m n two to produce full length um, protein so what the folks at Novartis did was they said, "Look, we want to find something that induces s m n two we 're going to rescue this disease because we have this second gene. We just needed to get to produce." full-length protein more efficiently. So we're going to screen for molecules that induce exon-7 inclusion by whatever mechanism. So it's phenotypic in the sense that you're just looking for a cellular outcome um, without reference to mechanism, but it was still pretty tightly engineered so that they specifically looked for exon-7 inclusion in the screen. Um, and they found a few molecules at... You know, talking to people who were there, it took a while for the team to basically settle on and prove that the molecule acted by binding to a stem loop in the um, uh, in the SMN2 pre-mRNA, which induces the SNRP1 to have a higher residency, which then leads to more efficient um, splicing. Okay, so there was... That's a
0: clear explanation for the rationale at the time. It became a little more clear upon further unraveling of the mechanisms that actually, you know, here you had a small molecule that actually was binding to an RNA target and gosh, you know, if that's possible, you know, that's, that's turning around in your mind thinking, well, we could actually, you know, design that from the ground up.
1: Yes. And they, they, um, So that story sort of has unfolded at the same time that Arrakis has unfolded. Um, You know, our point was that we wanted to do this intentionally, and not not that what the folks at Novartis had done was happenstance, but rather we wanted to start from the structure. Uh, So, you know, to look at a gene such as SMN2, to find the structures, to infer what, you know, you know, are there structures that are associated with this kind of a splicing event? And can we find binders to that structure that alter the splicing? Um, and splicing is a function that is of interest to us along with others. Um, and so it's a much more structure-driven concept as opposed to a phenotypically driven concept.
0: Yep, yep. And so I would imagine this is part of what uh, attracted the folks at Roche to come in here and do uh, a very big partnership with you guys because they have now seen – what. Let- they can do with uh, um, a small molecule against SMA with Ristoplam, as mentioned. I think that's that's now approved by the FDA and and uh, uh, out there in the marketplace. Uh, and now they're looking at that and saying, "Gosh, um, there's a there's a method out there now, like a platform that's uh, screened against a couple dozen targets. Uh, that th- this has some industrial kind of potential now."
1: I think you're right that this. This certainly informed their thinking. You know, the, a number of companies expressed real interest in working with us, um, and um, you know, so there there were other interesting possibilities in that regard. But but Roche, I think, was the was the group that was the most committed, um, and that was partly because, as you say, they had already they had already sort of tasted the fruit from that tree. Right, so they understood what was possible. Um, and uh, uh, and to the extent that we uh could go after additional targets by let's say a similar approach, um, we could probably work together very fruitfully.
0: And now it's out there competing with a uh viral vector gene therapy, Zolgensma, and um, the the um, the antisense drug by Biogen, uh, Spinraza. Uh, so it's here. You've got, you know, the small molecule coming back to that point, like originally small molecule up against these other modalities that are exotic and expensive and difficult for a whole variety of reasons. If you could do a small molecule with the uh, the, the specificity of um, RNA, gosh, wouldn't you want to? Uh,
1: well, that's that certainly motivated our thinking. Um, and, you know, I would say that um, what's interesting about SMA, and this is speculation on my part, is that you you might be able to make a case that, that a be- patient would benefit from more than one of those um, agents. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't, there is a potential for some competition between us and companies that go after diseases with oligos. Uh, but there's also a potential for complementarity.
0: Because there's so many different type variations, I mean, even within SMA. I mean,
1: um, yeah. And also, uh, there are, of course, mutational differences. Um, there are differences in the kinds of compartments that we get into. And, um, um, you know, the, so the distribution is quite different. The half-lives are quite different. So I, um, I wouldn't take it for granted that if you had one, you wouldn't want the other.
0: Okay, they can be paired, potentially. Um, now, we, we mentioned Mike uh, Gilman. You know, he's a previous, previous guest on the podcast. He came in to become the CEO. Uh, I think we're going to skip over him because, uh, well, he, he was a previous guest, and I, I intended to ask him about Arrakis, but he has such a gift for gab that we never even got around to talking about Arrakis. <laughs> but... Um, uh importantly, um, I, I do want to ask you about your personal transition during this time at, at Arrakis, because uh, I think this was uh, he he was a big part of this writing in a blog post for the company about you changing genders. And this would have been uh, public uh, in 2018. Can you can you talk to, I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this a billion times, but talk a little bit about your, your thought process on how. Um, how you decided to go about, I mean, announcing this to the business world, Uh, because like, it's a, it's a personal decision. You got to think about it, you know, internally, of course, but, but then there's like, you know, everybody else that you got to think about. Right.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, if people are depending on you, you can't just, um, you know, run off and do something casual, you know, you need to think about how you're affecting not just yourself, but how you're affecting so many other people. You want these relationships to be part of your future, and so you need to take care of people. Um, well, let see. A lot of people ask me when did I first know, and the answer would be about the age of four. Um and uh, yes, it was with me in one form or another for decades. Um, and it wasn't in the background. It was something I thought about every hour of every day of my, my life. But how I understood it was um, changed a lot over the course of my life. Um, but, you know, you, you get to the point where you have your career, you have a family, and you, you shove this to the background. Um, my uh, wife uh, got triple negative breast cancer in 2011 happily we completely um triumphed over that she's been disease free since 2016 um and but nonetheless it, it sort of dislodges your um, your sense of immortality uh and so i think that was the catalyst that began you know parts of my mind uh beginning to percolate and think about think about this more seriously so, um, so HRT, uh, you know, hormone replacement therapy began in December of 2016. I did not announce this to anybody at the time other than, uh, Kathy. Um, and then, um, so, and, and I began to start telling a few selected people in, uh, the fall of 2017, when it came to Mike, so there comes a point at which you're, you have you you have a plan, and the plan was that sometime in 2018, I was going to transition, and so in order for that to happen, at some point you have to sit down and explain things to your boss. Um, I don't think it's a good idea just to show up uh, and surprise people. Um, so he and I went to dinner, which in and of itself was not uh, uh, unusual. Um, we would you know every year or so we would have a dinner and talk about the past and the future. Uh, and I told him that, you know, I, I had something important to talk to about. He says, well, what? He says, well, I can't tell you. I said, I'm fine. My family's fine. But we'll talk about it then.
0: He's probably worried, like, are you going to quit or something? Yeah, yeah.
1: I said, no, I don't want to quit. No, I'm, 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 I'm healthy. Everything's fine. But, um, you know, it turns out that you then catalyzed the conversation with two syllables by just sitting down and telling someone I'm trans. Um, which I decided to do early in the meal because we were going to have a lot to talk about. Um,
0: No tiptoeing around. Let's just lay it (laughs) on you. (laughs)
1: No, no. No, there really wasn't much value in that. And um, so, um, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful conversation. And um, what I realized at that point was that, um, and I, I don't think anyone misunderstood me, but, but in, in telling people, starting in 2017, 2018, it wasn't like I was looking for permission. You know, this was going to happen. Now, I wanted things to go well. I would work hard to make things go well f- for everybody. Um, but it it, it was going to happen. Um, and I'm just letting you know. So that conversation in March of, of 2018 was great and so we we've we put together kind of a battle plan so in in um in April of two thousand eighteen we had a board call with a special agenda item, you know a short science update, and it was just him and me on this board call um and then i explained i had i had talked to a few of them before the board call, but the rest of them you know found out on the call and every- everyone was just enormously supportive um it was just um, you, you worry that they that, that they won't be, but actually, everyone was enormously supportive. What what were
0: you afraid of that that might happen?
1: You know, you're afraid that people's view of you will change dramatically, not necessarily for the better, as a result of this. And the thing is that you know they've invested in the company, and therefore, by extension, they've invested in you. And so, there's some concern that would be natural that. This is all going to fall apart, and so I think you need to reassure them in that regard. Um, so, um, so I, I, you know, you could always run across someone who just has a real issue with all of this, but so far I haven't run across very many people like that.
0: And as part of that, um, the board meeting or meeting with Mike, did I mean you, you laid out the full. Um Transition plan, like you're going to change your name from Russell to Jennifer, and all the pronouns are going to change. Um, this is and and a bunch more, right?
1: Well, he didn't necessarily lay out everything to every party because it seems a little confrontational. And in general, I tried to answer the questions that people had. Um, you, you know, it's always better to listen to what people are worried about than just. Kind of tell them everything, because um, I often found very different responses from people. It was it was it was fascinating and fun, um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, for the board there was a little bit of an agenda there that that you know we were going to tell the I was going to sit down and have one-on-ones with all the managers, um, the leadership team over the next several weeks. Then, in May there was going to be a general coming out to the um, to the to the to the team at arrakis um, and that in june um, I would go as they say full time and that's
0: when you became Jennifer.
1: correct actually that in the background uh that actually happened in in may um, so my i don't remember the exact day but At one point, I got in the mail the court order from the family and probate court of Middlesex County um, that my name had been changed. And so my legal name somewhere in May of 2018 became Jennifer. Um, So – but yes, in terms of how I presented to the world, uh, that happened um, on June 18th.
0: Yeah. 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 And so when you make the announcement to the world, and I, I saw Mike's uh, blog post, which, you know, I'm sure that he probably went through more than one draft on that, <laughs> um, thinking carefully about what to say. Uh, but people, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, for for you, you sound like just very graceful about this. And I wonder if this has, if you've had to think harder about, the, the grace that we provide other people uh, because, you know, um, I'm sure this was just jarring for a whole lot of people you'd interacted with in the business sense over the years that, that knew you as Russ and would use the, the pronoun he uh, and not think twice. And probably, you know, I mean... Keep doing that, like by acts. Even if they mean well and are supportive of you know, supportive of you, they might they might you know lapse into those old behaviors. And you know, I can imagine being on your end, and you know, feeling like a little bit. Uh, people could be sensitive about that, like like oh, don't you care about you know my transition? But actually, like you know, that's not really. <laughs> I, I I think of it as probably there's probably like people who have you know their uncle or aunt or grandma out there who's going to need like a little more time to come around to accept this, right?
1: Yeah. So, so first of all, yes, um, I would say that that the um, adjustment time, um, the adjustment time versus age of the adjuster is a is a is pretty linear. Um, you know, people, you know, old people like me uh, actually. Had a harder time adjusting, whereas young people, like when I came out, people were like, "That's it, <laughs> okay. What's your name? What are your what are your pronouns?" And I heard there was sushi. There's sushi. Um, so you know, there was there was this range of reactivities to all of this. Um, you know, and the pronouns are an interesting. I I I fancied myself beforehand as being very you know casual about yeah whatever it'll all be fine. I did find myself being more sensitive to the pronouns than um, than I think I originally expected. Um, th- th- just bear with me for, for a moment. So, you know, the thing about about transitioning is you're going from this this situation where privately you you've you've had this relationship with yourself as part of yourself for many years. Transitioning is about bringing everyone else into that relationship with Jennifer instead of Russell. And, um, and so it's an intrinsically social enterprise transitioning. And so you think about it, everybody genders everybody in every conversation. So it's not like I'm asking people to gender me, but not gender anyone else. I'm asking people just to gender me, just like they gender everybody, right? Just differently. Um, so it's this exporting – so there's this sense that, well, am I exporting my gender identity to you and your use of pronouns? And I do worry about that. But by the same token, it's really trying to position myself correctly in, in my relationship to people and, and asking that that be a community effort. So it's it's a little complicated. But finally, let me come back to your issue about grace. Um, I think you're right. I I – I certainly, you know, want to just accept people kind of where they're at. Um, People can be, you know, uh, wonderful to know, great friends, outstanding scientists, and just be very, very different from from us, from each other. And um, you kind of need to meet people where they are and, um, and, you know, try to make them part of your community. And it sounds like you um, you're, you're willing
0: to extend that to other people. And, and I would imagine, you know, it's like a lot of things in life. I mean, they'll extend you uh, the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, it, you know, not in this gendered sense, but, you know, and I don't know. Um, other aspects of life.
1: Yeah. And I, I am sure that I have fallen short in that regard. And I try to basically keep that in mind, um, as I go through the day. Um, so I, I will, I mean, I will confess that if, if someone I know have known for a long time sort of misgenders me in some way or another, in some ways, it's a little easier to deal with than the stranger because if the stranger misgenders you, you're like, "Oh God, I'm not getting this right," you know? <laughs> because they're not invested in you at all. You know, they just you're just some random person that they bump into. So, um, but yeah, it, there's a there's a sense in which we all have to kind of hold hands and take care of each other.
0: I think that's a great point to end on, Jennifer Petter. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run.
1: Oh, I had enormously good time, and thank you very much for talking with me.
0: Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.